watch you swim the deepest sea and climb the highest peak. It's a certain climax you are reach. This is merciless, I got to practice what to preach. Then no, the mercy, because tell you fly all the way from Paris. And now tell me how she prayed that Chuck Norris. She no want no man to thump and box and kick my fist. Want a man that is romantic, well, well. Yes, people, how you doing? I have to tell you, this was a big track in 95. You know what I mean? Just finished school and this was bumping. Ah, yeah. Really brings back memories, you know. Ah, <laughs> oh, people. We you know we've got plenty to talk about this week. You know, I mean, a lot, a lot has been happening. Been out, done some things. You know, living that life, having fun, or trying to. But yeah, it's all a bit. I have to tell you, man. Like, so you know, started a new job recently, and I've got. I've got two suits you, know, you, know, you don't want to wear the same suit all the time So I like to mix and match um, And I had to rep- I, I replaced the trousers to my grey suit At the end of last year But I haven't had a, haven't had a reason to wear it You know what I mean So went to, uh, went to put on the grey suit the other day Found the trousers don't fit Now People, that wasn't because I've been yamming all the pies. No, the cut had changed on the trousers, so I had to go back to the shop. So I went back to the shop, and I'm talking to the people. You know, I'm saying like, listen, you sold me some trousers that, that you know, I mean, aren't fit for purpose. What's going on? And you know they're 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 trying to deny they're like oh but you've had them too long you've had them too long we can't we can't give you a refund we can't exchange them I'm like listen I might have had them for a while haven't worn them as you can clearly see and the other thing being you sold me something that isn't what I asked for which you readily admit to so. You need to fix up and deal with the matter. Eventually, I get them to, you know what I mean, exchange them. So it's cool. So I have to buy a new suit now because they've stopped making the suit that I had. So I had to buy a new suit. This is where the problem happens, fam. Because I realise going to the shops on my own is... Extremely problematic because I'm, I'm so I have to get this suit. So I'm in, like, I'm you know, I'm trying it on, and the guy's like, Look in the mirror, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know, I cannot see the mirror. And then he keeps on being like, Oh, but what can't you see the trap? I'm like, No, my sight is fucked, I cannot see how these trousers are looking on me. So I'm having to rely on this jackass. Of, of a store guy Trying to give me this advice And It was just infuriating 
so infuriating because you know I'm in and out of the changing rooms, and every time I come out, this dude has fucked off somewhere, and I mean, it's, it seemed like he had some friends come in the shop or something, but I just overhear the most ludicrous story, man. Trust me. So I've just come out of the changing rooms and I just hear, yeah, so, you know, when I was young, I was jacked. I was so jacked. I was looking so good. Looked, ah, oh, man, I was hot. Hot. Everyone used to say I look hot. I look good. And I was, I was on holiday and um, I was offered £4,000 for, for, for me to let someone, you know, give me a blowjob. And these people he's with were like, oh, really? And you didn't? And he's like, nah, nah, I turned it down. Turned it down. And they're like, how, oh, how come you turned it down? How come you turned it down? Oh, was it a man? And he's like, yeah, 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 it was a man. A man offered me £4,000 to blow me. And I turned it down. But I have to admit, I did consider it. I did consider it. Yeah, I thought I'd shut my eyes and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I was too hot. I looked too good. I knew I could get a blowjob for anyone. So I didn't. I didn't do that. And I'm just thinking to myself, who the fuck are you kidding? If a guy offered you a Mars bar, you'd have dropped your drawers, you fucking idiot. You know what I mean? This guy is just blowing smoke up everyone's ass. But it's just like, eventually, I get this fool to come back over. And every time, like, every time, it was the same thing. I'm just like, I can't see the mirror. Because he was just like, oh, I've made an alteration. What do you think? I'm just like, I don't know. I can't see. As every time, I can't see. And, see, the problem I have getting trousers as well, right? So, you know what I mean? I'm not... Overly big I'm not a rake But I'm not huge But I've got big thighs And so Like you can't wear The right size trousers Because like it's real tight on the thighs So you have to get the larger size And this son of a bitch Kept on shouting out Like this really big size And be like oh you're a blah 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 And I'm just thinking What the fuck are you doing you know what I mean? Trying to let everyone in this friggin' store know my business. Ah, it was infuriating. So, I mean, that's it. I cannot go clothes shopping on my own. I'm going to have to try it and drag someone out to be a mirror. Because, fuck. It's insane. It's insane. Like, I don't know what it is. But there's more and more things that are just becoming extremely difficult of late um like walking in the dark ugh that's a nightmare trust me i swear i'm gonna get run over again but fuck it have fun while it lasts right but anyway so that was just my weird drama weekend but let's get to some more interesting stuff as I, I'm, I'm sure i probably lost all my listeners now right but um yeah we'll get to some other Information other 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 happenings, right? Here we go. Okay, so I don't know how real this is, but supposedly Ford, yes, 
Ford, the car manufacturer, they are making a bed that can stop your partner from rolling over and hogging your side of the bed. Yeah, because everyone has had that situation. Like you, you're you're in your nice big bed, but there's plenty of room, plenty of room, and then you wake up and find yourself hanging over the edge because the damn person you're in the bed with has hogged your side as well, and they're fast asleep, and you're precariously perched, which is just. It's irritating as hell. And when you bring it up, they're like, oh, you're lying, you're lying, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. So, Ford is, yeah, supposedly they're making this bed, right? So, um, when someone rolls over onto the wrong side, there's sensors that, sense it and the bed kind of tilts and rolls them back which I do wonder how comfortable this bed would be so because obviously the bed must be kind of partitioned in a way because it the whole bed itself wouldn't be able to move like that otherwise the other person would wake up right so yeah I'm kind of I'm curious, it it kind of baffles me how this could actually, actually work, but supposedly, it's, um, it's, it's part of an inventions, um, series that the company is doing to explore how technology can make our lives easier and better, Which is very interesting. So if this is true. Ooh. I I, I feel it could save. A lot of relationships. You know. But um. Who knows. And I think the big question is. How much would this bed. Cost. Because beds can be pricey. You know what I mean. So. It, 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 if it can do all of this, yeah, how how uh, how much? Interesting, right? Maybe it'll be a Valentine's present next year. Okay, so in some more weird news. Um, so in um in London we have the South Bank. So it's a long stretch along the Thames. And it's vibrant as hell, you know, along it you've got like the BFI, um, the South Bank Centre itself, Royal Festival Hall, uh, the National Gallery, no, the National Theatre, um, and you've also got the Tate Modern. And so in 2006, the Tate opened up a new section and 
it's very impressive and at the top it's very tall and at the top they've got a viewing platform it's a 360 viewing platform so you can walk all the way around because that's what 360 obviously means but right by the tape are these glass apartments and so they sued the tape saying that they need to block off the viewing platform because people can look into their um, living rooms and and whatnot and you know it's a breach of their privacy and blah 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 see but the thing is it's ridiculous because you chose to build your house out of glass so straight away Anyone can look in. Someone could fly a, fly a drone. They could use binoculars or a telescopy thing. You mean so you do not have the privacy because of that unless you use blinds. And that's what the Tate said. Look, if you don't want people to look in at you, put up blinds during the day if you want to be like, you know, running around your living room with no garments on. It's as simple as that. But, you know, it went to the high court. And the judge, uh, uh, Mr. Justice Mann, he was a sensible chap. Was a sensible chap. So he said, um, the claimants have submitted themselves to a sensitivity to privacy due to the extensive use of glass walls in their properties these properties are impressive and no doubt there are great advantages to be enjoyed in such extensive glassed views but that in effect comes at the price in terms of privacy which is good because if they had won oh my god that would have been insane i have to say i was on the tape one time with um a friend and they claimed that there was a, a, a lady in one of these apartments exercising with no clothes on i got bad eyesight so obviously i can't see that far but you know, that, 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 that's something that happens. I have to say, I used to do martial arts near London Bridge before I blew my knee out. And um, there was uh, there was these glass, they weren't even glass really. It was just this girl just didn't, <laughs> didn't pull the blinds. But she would shower with, you know, and, and everyone could see in. But she did it every week. And she knew everyone was looking. So I think sometimes people do this shit because they're exhibitionists, right? You know what I mean? It's, it's got nothing to do with, oh, you know, I just wanted good views or I wanted to get the light in. It's just, I like people watching me prance around my flat with no clothes on. But yeah, it's a crazy world we live in, people. I mean, you know, do whatever you want, you know what I mean? Just don't try and sue people because you wanted to have people watch you, like, jumping around. <laughs> it's as simple as that, right? So this weekend, um, well, I say this weekend, 
I mean, uh, last weekend, <laughs> you know what I mean, uh, on the, um, the 9th, the 9th of February, uh, we had UFC 234 from uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, yeah, it was... It was an interesting one because a few hours before the main event, because it was meant to be Robert Whittaker, uh, welterweight champion against, no, sorry, middleweight champion. Yeah, middleweight's 185. 185? Yeah, middleweight. Yes, the middleweight champion against... Um, Kelvin Gaskillin, ugh, main mind fart for a minute, man, um, yeah, so we had that, uh, but, yes, as I said, look, just before the fights, a few hours before, really, um, Robert Whittaker had to go to hospital because he had a, um, was it a collapsed bowel and an internal hernia, so yeah, not good, man. Not good at all. You know what I mean. So it meant the card got changed. Card got changed, and um, yeah, it was like uh, I don't know. It, there was some good fights. There was some good fights, but you know there was also some. Very bad refereeing. Ugh. Very bad refereeing. Um, so, I think it's like, you know, there was a lot of fights still. Uh, but it's probably the main card. I mean, that's probably the thing. And the main card started with controversy for sure. Because we had Jim Crute. Um, the Australian lad against Smiling Sam Alvey. Um, and the thing with this was Jim Crew hit Alvey with a good hook. Alvey went down, you know what I mean? Alvey was rocked for sure. Referee went to kind of like, seemed like he was stepping in, but then he didn't step in. So it was a bit weird because Crute thought he was going to do the walk away knockout, but Alvi wasn't out, out, you know what I mean? So Alvi gets up and Crute comes at him again. So he kind of goes down a bit because he's still wobbly. But he's protecting himself, you know. Crute is trying to, um, like, ground and pound him. But Alvi's arm is over his head. Like the referee is kind of, you know, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Alvi gives him the thumbs up, says he's okay twice. Crew is throwing punches, but they're hitting Alvi's arm. They're not even hitting his head. But the referee stops the fight. Like, and Alvi gets up and he's like, what the fuck? And see, the thing is. A lot of times when people get up and they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're wobbly. They're still wobbly. 
Do you know what I mean? The eyes are still all... But, yo, Alfie was clear. Do you know what I mean? He, he'd, he'd recovered from the earlier knock. And, um, yeah, it was a bad... It was a bad fuck-up by the ref, man. It was, yeah, not good at all. But... I don't know. There's been no word. It was it was John. Um, actually, I, feel, I was gonna say John Goodard. John Goodard, I think. But yeah, he hasn't come out and said anything. Like you know, what I mean, I fucked up. I made a mistake. So who knows? And I don't think Alvi can challenge the decision. Yeah, it was just a bad decision, you know. So that was the first fight. Then we had Montaya, Mon, Montana, Montana, De La Rosa against Nadia Kasim. Um, and God damn, that was, whoo, that was a beatdown. Montana just, yo, she just swarmed Nazim and just took her down. Just took her down and then was just beating on her. Like trying to get in a submission, trying to get a better position, but she was just controlling it. Controlled the entire first round. You could say, I don't know if you could say it's 10 8, but it was very dominant. Second round, we got halfway through, and um, yeah, like, um, it was it was a uh, armbar, but god damn, you have to say, Chasm, woo, she like did everything she could to get out of the hold, man. You you like it was I was shocked how flexible she was. You you know you'd kind of have figured her arm is gonna get fucked up. But yeah, she she survived it for a while. But yeah, had to tap in the end. So yeah, dominant showing from De La Rosa. Then we had Rani Yaya against Ricky Simone. Um, like the refs, all the all the all the um, all the judges, should I say, all the judges gave it to Simone pretty clearly. You know, one ref gave it 30-25, you know, which is like, whoa. Um, I wouldn't say it was that. But what I would say is, yeah, yeah, he, he needs to work on his stand-up. There's the thing is, like, he's great on the ground. So he doesn't care about getting taken down because he kind of figures... You know, once you're on the ground, I he he that's his playground. You know what I mean? That's where he wants to be. But the problem is, his stand up, it wasn't threatening. Uh so Simone could kind of do what he wanted. Because Yaya was like just throwing, and he was throwing so hard. That he'd be like falling over from the shots and out of positions from shots and stuff like that. He did connect a couple of times and kind of rock Simone. But it was just one punches. There was no combinations because he's just throwing 
like crazy trying to connect with one punch, which meant that he couldn't control the distance, couldn't control the fight. Because he wasn't really throwing any jabs, any combination one-twos or anything like that. So, yeah, Simone just controlled it. He'd take him down and then stand up. Punch him on the feet, take him down, stand up, and it just went like that. Just went like that. Which is a shame as Yaya, he's been in the game for a while and he'd been building up a nice little run. But, yeah. He die, like he needs to polish some stuff up um, because he'll never, you know what I mean? He'll never reach top five. He'll never, you know what I mean? He'll never challenge if he is just this one-dimensional because it's not, um, he's not Damian Meyer, you know what I mean? And that's the problem. Like next up, co-main event. It was Lando Venada against Marcus Rosa Marino, who was making his Octacon debut. Crazy thing was, this fight was meant to be the um, main fight on the prelims. But because of um, the Whitaker-Gastelin fight dropping off, the card got shuffled and this got moved up. And, yo, it was insane. Because Marcus looked huge. Looked huge. And this was lightweight. So this is 155 pounds. And I'm going to say, Marcus looked like he was at least 170. If not 185. So, like, when you saw them both in the ring, you'd think, oh, God, Lando don't have a chance here but Lando you know I mean avoided the early punches and then just took him down with a great body lock took him down and then just handled him handled him on the ground just landing ground and pound ground and pound ground and pound but it wasn't a ferocious ground a pound. It was just very melodic. Just ease it. Just throwing enough punches so he wasn't stood up. Just working, working, working until um, Marcus just made uh, just a weird mistake. And then Lando sunk in the submission and won the fight. Pretty convincingly, really, you know. And then we had the main event. And the main event was Israel Adesanya against Anderson Silva. Anderson the Spider Silva. And um, so this was, you know, I mean, this was billed as Anderson now against the young old Anderson, the new Anderson, and um, yeah, I don't know, it was, there was a lot of kind of flashy combinations thrown, there was a lot of near misses with crazy kicks and stuff like that, but 
it was very um there was no real combinations in the fight for the most part there was like it there was um like in round three anderson you know he, he it was weird he'd kind of just stand there and let adesanya just hit him sometimes and he'd smile like yo that didn't hurt but you mean you're not gonna win a fight if you're letting someone hit you the judges are seeing this person hit you and you're not doing anything which was odd but uh yes um so yeah that was happening and uh yeah i don't know like adesanya won the first round clearly won the first round you'd then say that anderson probably won the second round because he kind of came forward a bit more in the third round anderson just didn't really do that much and you kind of felt that maybe if Israel took it to Anderson a bit more, he could have possibly got the stoppage or something. But, like, it was a good performance from Adesanya. It was a performance where, you know, he, he showed he has definitely got skills. He's definitely got talent. You could say, though, in places it was a bit of a safe performance. And I feel it also showed that Adesanya has got holes in his game. Because I, the, the thing is, so, because he comes from the kickboxer background. And he's got great kicks. And his punching is good as well. But he doesn't have a threat of the takedown. And so without the threat of the takedown. Like you're only giving someone so many looks. And they know they don't have the threat of a possible submission. A possible getting controlled on the ground. And... Without that, you basically know what Adesanya's trying to do. And you kind of have the feeling that maybe when he comes up against someone like um, a Chris Ra or a Chris Weidman, a uh, Yoel Romero, he could have problems. Because they will threaten him with the takedown. And although Adesanya's takedown defense in the last fight. Um, yo, that was good. His takedown in that fight was good for sure. But, you know what I mean, there's better wrestlers. There's a lot better wrestlers. So it's it's a bit like... When, when he isn't going to threaten them, they're going to have a big advantage. So, I think it was, as I said, look, it was a good performance. He beat a legend in Anderson Silva, but you would say that it's an Anderson Silva on the decline. 
and it it definitely showed holes in um Adesanya's game now he's a young cat so he he definitely can possibly um fill those holes but that's the thing it'd be like how is he going to you know how's he going to progress from here where's he going to go how is he going to tweak his game so it will be interesting to see how he is in his next fight and what that next fight will be you know because i think if we had had the Whitaker gaskelin fight then possibly you might have said that Adesanya gets the winner. But because we didn't get Gaskin and Whitaker. So that fight will be made next. They'll rebook that fight next. And um, depending on how long Whitaker's going to be out. So you kind of feel that Adesanya will probably fight have to fight one more time at least. Before he gets a title shot. And yeah. So who's he going to fight. And how's that going to go. So there's questions man. Definitely questions. Now. Um, I t- a, a couple of fights. That oh, have to say. Were extremely good. So on the early prelims. You had Jalen Turner. Against Callan Potter. And. God damn, Turner looked good. Woo! Definitely looked good, man. It was, he, he got Potter out of there in the first round. Heavy punches, rocked him, and then just pounded the shit out of him, basically. So, yeah, that was, that was crazy. And then on the... Um, on the uh, main prelims, you had um, Devontae Smith against Dong Hong Ma. And, um, yeah, Devontae Smith, woo, again, looked outstanding. Outstanding in this fight, you know. Didn't, like, Hong Ma didn't really... He didn't have anything in this fight, really. It was all Smith. It was all Smith. So, I think it will be interesting to see how Smith and Turner progress in their next fights. But they both had very good showings. Um, Yeah. Uh, So, next up, next weekend, um, on the 18th. Oh, Sunday, because it's a Sunday card. We have, um, whoo, US Pen, US, UFC on ESPN. Francis Ngano against the returning Kane Velasquez. So, god damn it, man. This card is crazy. Like, just the main card itself. You have, like, the first fight, Andre Philly against Miles Jury. Then you have Vicente Lupe against Brian Barberina. Alex Carreras against Crone 
Gracie. A Gracie is stepping foot in the octagon once again. Then you have Courtney Casey against Cynthia. Fine as hell Calvillo. Yes. Then James Vick against Paul Felder in the co-main event. Before Francis Ngannou faces the returning Kane Velasquez. And the question is, what Kane Velasquez are we going to see? You know what I mean? Urgh! This is going to be a great card, man. A great card. Really looking forward to. And it's like, you know what I mean? The prelims are good. Like, you know what I mean? The main bout on the prelims. Jimmy Rivera against Aljamain Sterling. Woo! And then in the early prelims, you have some great fights here. And one thing, you have the returning Jessica Penne, who we haven't seen in New York to go for a hot minute. So she's fighting Jodie Escabel. And you kind of feel that, I think that's a win, a, a must win for both ladies. So this is going to be extremely interesting. And uh, yeah, can't wait. So, um, yeah, that's Sunday the 17th of February, uh, coming from Talking Stick Resort Arena. So, yeah, we will um, bring you the rundown of that next week. I'm looking forward to some more good fights. So, I'm just back from a really fun evening at the South Bank Centre. Um, it was Troy Miller, the um, conductor, producer, uh, just musical wizard, Troy Miller. He um, he's reimagined Gershwin's music. And so, uh, yeah, it was um, the Philharmonia Orchestra. And vocals from Laura Malva and Sean Escoffery, which was just, ah, you know, I, I don't think you could have paired two better singers to really help bring the evening to life. It was just... It was it was really something else, you know. Um, I think Miller's reimagining of Gershwin's work has previously been presented by the London Symphony uh, Orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and a lot more. And he's also toured with Amy Winehouse, Shaka Khan, Roy Erves, Roy Ayers, Laura Molev and Gregory Porter and produced for Royes, Laura Molev, Gregory Porter and he um he mentioned this evening that he's been working on um Sean's new album. So looking forward to that. Uh yeah, so the it was split up into two halves and um you know, Laura and Sean sang in both. 
uh, different songs like Someone to Watch, I Got Rhythm, um, Sean Sang, But Not For Me, Embarrass, Our Embraceable You. And then in the second half, um, Laura did two of her own songs, Kiss My Feet and Show Me Love. And Sean did Foggy Day. And they ended with um, Summertime, which was, ah, it was something really fantastic. Now, the thing is, it's just like when I booked the tickets for the life of me, I couldn't really think of any of Gershwin's music. Though I have been to, you know, an evening of his work at the Barbican a few years ago. But then once you're there and you start hearing it, it all floods back. And you just remember, you know, because it's like works like this. Like a lot of people might not know the names of the songs, but you then realize that the music has seeped into just the cultural zeitgeist, you know, it. it it's played on adverts, it's played in films and TV shows, you know, like, you know, other people have used, like, bits and samples in other songs, so you know the music, you just don't always know the names, and with this reimagining, there was, like, this different kind of lilt to the songs, you know, you always recognize them, but the the intros might be slightly different. That you know, the, there'd be new little twists in the middle. It was really just fascinating the way he had worked it. You know, that it, yeah, it it was it was just great. The only kind of downside I would say was that. The microphones, like the vocals, there was a little echo on the vocals that isn't always there. I've been to a lot of other gigs at the South Bank, and yeah, usually it's a richer sound. Um, so I'm not quite sure why, but yeah, there was a little echo on the vocals, which was a shame. Like it didn't, like it didn't ruin the night. It's just like you know that it could have sounded richer yeah yeah and i was sitting next to um yeah two lovely ladies two sisters jahan and nevan um and it was really nice talking to them about like just the evening as a whole and just music in general you know because i think that's the thing because i went you know i just rode on my own because Hey, listen, if you wait for people to go to places, you will miss out on so much. So I just went on my own, which is fine. But the only thing with going on your own is there's no one to then talk about the experience with, you know. So it was like we we all would notice the, the little echo with the vocals. So it was just like, okay, so it's not just me. But sometimes you think yourself going crazy, you know. Um, so, we, you know, we talked about that. And then we just talked about how, you know, just the way it makes you feel and just 
like the 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 differences in the voices because yeah, Maluv and Godfrey sound completely different, but they both bring a vibrancy to the table. They both bring a lot of soul and depth that really kind of seeps into your soul. It's is it's just that thing that they've got, you know, and it's just. They're so talented, you just wish that they were more, like, mainstream isn't the word, but, you know, I I think that they'd be recognised more for their talents, you know, but yeah, so we talked about that, and then just other other stuff that we've, we've been to already this year, and we've got planned, so that was nice. You know, they were really friendly. And it, yeah, it just helped make the evening like just a, a, a really fun and enjoyable time, you know. So yeah, that was um Troy Miller's Gershwin Reimagined. And I, I would say, look, if if you get the opportunity, if he brings it to um a venue near you, definitely go check it out and if you can see um laura and sean perform anywhere yo you need to do that you need that in your lives you know this isn't the first time i've seen them and every time they really bring a a a new energy you know a new a new little something to the table so yeah if you can definitely see them live because hey you won't be disappointed you know um so yeah this was my fun evening and um i'm looking forward to the next time get to do some more live music and there's um yeah definitely some things coming up so uh you will hear about them in the podcast no doubt all right let's go to the next so um this evening it was a uh, yeah I had a fun time I went to uh, the Haywood Gallery for a members private viewing so um at the weekend uh, two new exhibitions are opening one from Diana Arbas and the other from Keda Atita uh and yeah got to um got to have a look around and it was very interesting. So, um, basically, uh, you know what I mean? Um, the two exhibitions. So, Diana Arbos was in the beginning uh, and, it, and it explores the first seven years of the photographer's career and features more than 100 photographs, many of which have never before been exhibited in Europe. So Arbus's photographs are among some of the most intimate, surprising and haunting works of the 20th century. And um, the first exhibition that we kind of looked at tonight was um, Keda Atita's The Museum of Emotion. So the artist's first survey show in the UK traces several strands of Atita's thought-provoking work from the past two decades featuring sculptures installations videos and photographs the exhibition 
inevitably explores the way that colonialism continues to shape how western societies represent and engage with non-western cultures so um yeah very interesting in indeed really
people's lives kind of in this kind of very repetitive uh, mix of what this, this this kind of personal personality kind of added into it. Um, so Asia says that symmetrical architecture acts as a backdrop that accentuates the standardized experience of the utopian social experience. Um, he yeah he has a major problem with 20th century architecture. He finds that the West has um, an obsession with categorizing things to try and make sense of them. And this will go on here, you will see that in here when he's critiquing architecture and later on when he um, kind of critiques uh, museology and kind of um, museum institutions. Um, yeah, so this piece, um, he also talks about appropriation a lot. And he also, in this piece particularly, he's critiquing um, architectural appropriation, which is not something that's ever really talked about. Um, he's particularly drawn to one architect called Le Corbusier, a very famous architect. My French is abysmal, and I do apologize. Um, probably the most influential 20th century architect in urban planning. And he discovered that this architect actually spent a lot of time when he was younger in Algeria and took, um, took his kind of architectural ideas from Algerian cities and then came back to the kind of Western countries that he was designing in, such as Paris, and built buildings such as this. These buildings are then used to house Algerian immigrants who were brought over by the French when Algeria was colonized, um, kind of after World War II, um, when France needed workers to help rebuild the country. And so he refers to them as these kind of side prisons, these kind of things are locking in. That's also shown beautifully in the sculpture behind you, which you see this kind of floating prison-like kind of visual idea of the grid does repeat quite a lot throughout the show. So I guess bearing in mind the grid of modernist architecture and the way he perceives it as a spy jail or spy prison uh, is worth considering as we look at the other pieces. A last note kind of on an artistic level about this piece. So he talks, of, he talks, of, he works a lot with the theme of mise en abîme, which if anyone knows a little bit about the art history, mise en abîme is basically an artistic device um, of kind of mirroring. So if you think about the sensation of standing in between two mirrors and seeing that kind of infinity mirror effect, that is essentially mise en abîme. And he uses, and he kind of equates it to the repetition that he sees within these buildings and he accentuates it through the way he shoots this. Um, so you don't just, you see literally just the wall of the building, it takes up the whole, the whole screen. And he talks about how that endless depth, think about it, when you're standing in between those two mirrors and you're seeing kind of infinity, it's kind of disconcerting. And he talks about how that's how these buildings made him feel as a child. So he kind of uses that artistic device to, as a kind of a form of like a, almost like a form of poetry to kind of show his emotions. He, as we're going around, we're about to discover he's a very empathetic and kind of humanist artist. So I'm gonna take us through now to the second room. And we're gonna discover more about the, the wonderful photographs of women on the walls and going to see these women, they act as these prints are actually all throughout the show and they act as hostesses almost that guide us through. But if we go through the curtain, I'll tell you more about the story. Please be aware there is a film on the left hand side that does have one. So now we need to forget almost everything we just heard. We can start again from scratch. So at Hayward, we're very, we love kind of bringing artists who haven't, so Peter Asia, for example, never shown in the UK before and doesn't have very much of a profile here. And at the Hayward Gallery over the years,
kind of joint shows where artists don't necessarily connect, you know, but it allows us to bring someone who is very well known um, and then bring someone who isn't very well known. So people can not only appreciate art that they already love, but they can also learn about new art. So that's what we're going to do. So the first one <laughs> is what we're doing here. So we have the Dean Arvin show um, in the beginning, which is something we've been very, very excited about. And how nice is it to go up a gallery and see the Deans? We love them. Bye bye, whiteboard. Um, so this show is curated um, by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's actually a boring show, so it um, opened in 2016 at the Met. Um, so it's curated by Jeff Rosenheim, Rosenheim, who is the head of photography at the Met, who we got to meet the other day. And absolutely fascinating. So you guys have known him. He's actually doing a tour of this show on Saturday. So if you guys are kind of into your photography and the Dan Arvin, I would highly recommend shopping along. It's completely free for you guys, and these are really fascinating guys to be your participants. So there are kind of slight restrictions on what the estate of Dan Arvin to allow institutions to do so we've been not doing a big full tour of this um, which is why we would advise you to go see Jeff so this archive so Giannardus's archive is one of only two archives owned by the photography sector of the Metropolitan Museum the other one belongs to Walter Evans another very well renowned 20th century um, documentary photographer. Um, so an artist's archive, it's a very broad word to use, um, used for photographer's archives, includes negative contact sheets and prints, um, as well as like correspondence, experiments, basically everything that they ever created or wrote about in their creative career. Um, and it was worth noting now that Gian Arbus is also an incredible writer, and we have a little reading nook um, over there um, with three catalogues, and one has some of her essays inside. And she's one of those rare artists with a bit of a double-edged sword and writes really eloquently. So I think, yeah, especially because the things which are written about her, obviously, because she's not alive anymore, it's impossible for us to really know what she's ever thinking. So that's the closest we're kind of going to get, and I highly recommend doing it. Um, so the In the Beginning show, actually, is all work for the first seven years of her life. Um, we have 100 photographs here. Two-thirds have never been shown in the UK before, and those two-thirds also have never really been shown before this, before this show started touring two years ago. Um, so they got, yeah, this is between 1956 and 1963, so seven years. She began shooting when she was age 33, so she wasn't kind of a young, glamorous, happy person, which I think is obviously more common kind of back in the 50s and 30s. Um, so yeah, she, she was uh, you know, a mature adult when she began uh, working in photography. And before that, with her husband, she was actually working a lot in fashion photography, and she never called it her own work. Even though she was shooting, she never took any credit for the work that she was doing. Um, so she shot, in her lifetime, we know, over 7,000 roles, because she made, she labeled every single role. Um, she wrote a little label on it, and they have role one, and they have role like 7,300 something, but some of them are missing, we can't have all of them. Um, so a lot of these prints are incredibly rare, a lot of the negatives have been destroyed um, before she passed away, so these are the only print copies. These are all printed by Diane Arbus as well, 
which I think is very professional. But there is a small room at the back of the other room, which is called the Boxes Pen, which is a separate portfolio of her work. Um, it's very good for interest by the legal horoscope, which is Neil. <laughs> Lovely gentleman who's doing a talk tomorrow in the Pestel room, um, which is going to be amazing. And you guys can come to it. He works printing her work. But yeah, these prints are all made by him. And he's also five millimeter work. She is most famous for her one twenty meter format work and her square work, which you can see at the back of Gallery 5. Um, so it's actually a completely new way of seeing her work. And this is before she got her very reflect um, in 1972. So if anyone knows the history of the Hayward, we had a Leonardo show um, in 1972. And this is one year after she passed away. And this is just as she's beginning, uh, her life ended just as she's beginning to kind of become well known within the art world. After being rejected for a really long time, her style, she, as you're going around, you're going to see a lot of eyes blazing at you. Um, the curator, Jeff Rosenheim, he believes that artists and subjects were as drawn to her as she was to them. That unlike normally with documentary photography, where it's very much a one-way street, short that art photography is a two-way street. And about how her subjects, she was not just trying to sneak around and kind of try and catch people in the moment. It was very um, common in photography to try and hide their cameras, yeah. but she never hid her camera. Her camera was always in, in, in plain sight. You hear, yeah, you hear stories of artists in the British Council press on, Robert Frank, hiding themselves, often sometimes even in kind of a 90-millimeter, 90-degree uh, viewfinder with a secret mirror in, so it looks like you're over there, but you're actually looking over there. Um, but she would plant herself inside a situation that she found interesting and just see what unveiled itself and make these kind of human connections with people. So like Atia downstairs, Georgie's going to talk a little bit about the curation of the show, because as you can see, in my opinion, this is like one of the favourite ways I've ever seen a photographer curate it, but yeah, yeah. no of walls. Yeah, I believe this is the exact setup that started at the Met. I did not the same print, but very similar, uh, and it's been shown like that as it's toured around. So uh, Jeff Rosenheim is very, very keen to not have photographs on the wall. There are some in the room in the box of pen room we've been talking about at the back. There are a few on the wall there, uh, I guess to replicate the idea of a box because the portfolio came in a box. But in this show, uh, it's very important to him that they're, they're all on pillars. So he talked about the way that art is very supersized nowadays uh, and that positioning <coughs> them on these pillars uh, celebrates the power and the intimacy of a small image. So you're meant to have individual encounters with each piece that you come to. You can't compare the two works next to one another. He was very, uh, very careful to not have two works that can draw visual comparisons, because that's not important to him. Well, he thinks it's not important in the reading of her work. Uh, it's very Joseph who knows, who knows the title. For anyone that's not particularly familiar with her work, they're very um, strange observations often. They're not a very, uh, Depicted something, they pick out the, the odd things you may not notice. My favourite one today was man with serious baby. <laughs> 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 so there's no direct path or chronology. 
so um, you just walk around and encounter uh, the people as they encounter you. So she says that she was um, controlled by the image, or that the camera took the picture. There's some very good quotes of hers, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I don't trust the shutter, the image says, and it's like being closely smothered. It's a lovely quote. Um, so as you engage, uh, encounter the, um, the work, they're meant to draw you in rather than uh, you choosing the path, so to speak. She says he sees these not so much as a grid, but more like a fog. So it's lovely to think about that as you move around. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll let the work speak yeah, for itself exactly now. Oh yeah, so hopefully you were able to hear that. I tried to record just the kind of breakdown that we were given on both exhibitions. Um, they were both really interesting. I mean, let, let's start off with um, the Museum of Emotion from uh, Kadi Atta. Um this was very interesting because, yeah, it, it it was showing kind of different images that you might normally find, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, giving it a new kind of breakdown, like the way it was presented. Like, as, as, as you might have heard, it was about, you know, trying to turn the idea of a museum on its head. So, not giving you kind of artifacts, but giving you art to look at and lighting it slightly differently to what you might normally find and the placement is different to what you might normally find. So, all of that was very interesting and the different kind of imagery that you might see. Because, like, they were showing... Um, Images of like soldiers who had come back from like the Second World War, I think it was, and so there was experimenting uh, with the first type of plastic surgery, and so there's a lot of that. So there's it, those images, and then he had like sculptures do interpretations of those photos. So there was different kind of busts around. So there was all of this and then it was getting paired with like African masks and and taxidermy and different kinds of stuff. So it was very interesting in the composition. The only problem for me was it was all very dark <laughs> because, you know, he's trying to give this different lighting and this different look. It just made it very, very dark in the place. So it was, I, I did find it difficult to really um, kind of see. And there was, like, it it's not busy, but because it was, like, the private viewing, so everyone is, like, there looking when you're trying to look at certain pieces. And, you know, to, you have to get I have to get close to see. So it was a bit like, Ugh. I don't really feel like I can get close and and, and see what I want to see at the moment. So I think it's, a, it's something that I want to go back to. I'm going to try and find a quiet time and go and check it out. 
so yeah, uh, like when I went to see um, Diana Arbus's work in the beginning, that was it was really interesting because I think you all of her pictures. Um, I don't. I know that audio is a bit quieter. Um, but basically, you know what I mean, she would just take a camera and take photos, so she wasn't trying to hide what she was doing, and I think because of that, all the photos had this kind of precociousness to it, this inquisitiveness, like, because you had the person kind of looking back in a way, so they're all looking at you, you know I mean? like, as they were looking at her with these kind of expressions like hey yeah this is me so it's very yeah it was it it, 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 it was like different really different and it kind of you had these weird feelings looking at these images and then the images they all the all the photographs they had um uh like on the nose explanation titles like man with a hat in a crowd or woman holding baby in the park you know what I mean like boy in the pool hall looking they just all had those on the nose titles and it was kind of yeah it was just it was it, it was a lot different to a lot of the photography that you might go and see which was interesting so i definitely would say that this is and, and like these are both exhibitions that are worth checking out because they are so di- they are so different in themselves so it's such a contrast going from one to the other but also they're so different to stuff that you may have seen before so it's a different experience you know what I mean and if you're a fan of art if you're a fan of like just the experience like sometimes you know what I mean I say to people yo like you come check some shit art out like not shit art but like come check some shit out you know what I mean let's go look at some art and for me it's not like oh I need to know the artist I need to know what their portfolio is it's about going and having experiences going and immersing yourself in something because you know what end of the day you might not like it. it might you might not connect with it it might not resonate with you but it's an experience so then by seeing something different you're understanding you're exploring yourself because you're like okay so I get on with this but I don't get on with that you know what I mean so it's different but not everyone likes that not everyone is into that like there's people that will be like oh i want to go see art i want to go see art let me know when there's stuff and you say yo there's this but they're like eh, i don't really want to because you don't really want to see art you want to see things that you know what I mean are perceived by everyone else as being something that everyone must see 
but that's boring you know what I mean? it's about exploring and finding new things finding things that are on the on the low do you know what I mean it's not just about seeing these big exhibitions that everyone's like oh darling you must see but this is something that is interesting this is something that I feel people will be talking about in the future so it's cool to see it before it gets crazy you know what I mean so yeah, if you if you've got some nothing to do at the weekend and you want something a little different, hey people, go to the Hayward Gallery. It's on the South Bank, by the Royal Festival Hall and the Queen Elizabeth Hall, and go check out the new Diana Arbas and Kada Atta exhibitions. I think you might like it. So this week I um I stumbled on a weird TV show. It's air, it aired on um All Four, which is a uh, UK TV channel. So I don't know how anyone in the rest of the world will be able to see it, but that would be for you to find out, I guess. Um, it's written by Rose Cartwright and Kirsty Swain. And it's starring Charlie, Charlie Clive, Kieran Sonia Sawawa, Nima Algar, Joe Cole, Anthony Welsh, and um, Dune Mackinan. Um, so the kind of the basic gist of the show is. 24 year old Marnie is not okay she may just seem quiet to um, others but the noise inside her head is relentless for the last 3,672 days she has been assailed by an incessant barrage of graphic x-rated faults that intrude at the most inappropriate of moments on her day-to-day life whether she's sitting exams at university waiting at a bus stop or passing strangers on a street her life is interrupted by irrepressible sexual faults Marnie has no idea what's wrong with her why she play why she is plagued by these mental images and what do they mean is that who she really is deep down marnie's anxiety has reached fever pitch at breaking point she packs a bag jumps on the first available bus and ends up in scotland she doesn't know a soul not even herself but the big city is perfect place to reinvent yourself right let loose in london marnie experiences the wonder and the terror of the city unfolding itself before her rooftop parties impossibly crowded tubes and midnight adventures she soon finds out she's not the only one who's lost However, as she meets a host of other characters who alternately help and hinder her during her unique journey to find her real self. Um, it's a different kind of show, you know. It's like, diff- it's, 
interesting. You don't really see things that kind of show anything like this, really. Like, there's been a few shows where someone's like, oh, I'm a sexaholic. But that's kind of it. You know what? The, the one show that this kind of reminds me of, it was an old, like, 90s show called Dream On. It was an American kind of sitcom. That's what this is kind of most like, I guess. Because, like, the it's kind of interspersed with graphic images of the things that Marnie is seeing in her head. So she might walk past someone and, in, like, envision someone else having sex with them. And that's, you get kind of flashes of those scenes so you see the real world scene of the person walking and then the weird scene that's kind of floating around her head so you have all of this and she's kind of wondering is this the thing that is holding her back is this the thing that is stopping her from like living the life she wants to live so she's looking for answers and we see her kind of on that journey to try and find those answers. You know, she tries work. She tries romantic dalliances with women and men. And, you know, she's not quite sure which is the way to go. What is the thing to do? Who's the person to do it with even? You know? And that's the kind of thing. So we're seeing this. And yeah, it's, 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 as I said, look, it's interesting. You're kind of like, oh, I wonder where this is going to go. Because it is a bit different. Um, I would say, though, it, I think at the very end, it then just becomes a bit like everything else. You know, it it, it, it doesn't... Because it's like, she she pushes people away because of what she's perceiving. It's like, you know what I mean? I've got these things in my head, so I can't be around these people. Or, oh, I need to have sex with that person now. Oh, but they don't want to have sex with me. Oh, it's because, you know what I mean? When it's... It's not really the things in her head. She's kind of acting very corset to people, just in general. You know, and, and so it's using the uh, sexual OCD. It's using that as a crutch when the real thing that she needs to work on is herself and the way she treats people and and that seems to be the big thing and the series kind of looks at that but then at the very end it just seems to kind of be like oh you know that's no longer a thing we're not gonna, like, it's just, these people are just going at her because of her 
mindset. You know what I mean? And and then they forget about just the fact that she's acting a bit of an ass. And it's like, oh, let's put her with the other ass. So that that was a bit just like, eh, that's a bit disappointing. Because it just then became just, I don't know, like one of these just average shows. Because it was nice, because it was a bit unique and a bit different. And, you know, I think just exploring kind of some different kind of issues. But, yeah, it then just becomes, like, I wouldn't say normal. Because, it's you know, I think there's no real normal with love. It's just, you get caught up in just the, the humdrum stuff that you are always shown on TV and that's the thing you know it is it's good to see something that shows things a little differently it's good to show things where love isn't a cookie cutter emotion and you know you, you you're actually trying to explore what it is and what it means you know what are the barriers to it what are the parameters to it like, how do you find it? What does it actually mean? And then going from that to just, oh, you're odd, I'm odd, let's be together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's what we see all the time. Like, two broke girls, not two broke girls, what's that other one with um, Sheard Hib? Uh, that girl, new girl. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember watching that. It started off kind of quirky. And then it just become just average humdrum. And that's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this gets a second season. And it explores new things. But I I don't know. I like, because the way it ended, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if it needs a second season now. You know, like six episodes is very good though. So it's six half an hour, about half an hour episodes. So it's just the right amount of time. But um, yeah, I don't know. Check it out. See what you think, and um, what the ending kind of how that means to you. Because I think that's the thing, really. Because I guess you know everyone's gonna take something different from it but listen as i said look if you like kind of quirky tv if you damn like i don't know if anyone even remembers dream on you know what i mean um but yeah if you like something a little different and you just don't want that cookie cutter emotionless trite that you kind of find on uh you know network tv maybe give this a go so it's called pure and um yeah in the uk it's on all four channel four um don't know where you will find it anywhere else but yeah just change your ip address and um Download the app and watch it. <laughs> you might enjoy it. Okay, so it had been a while. 
um, since I'd read one of Mark Dawson's John Milton books, so I thought I'd pick up Salvation Row. This is book six in the series, and um, yeah, as usual, it's read by David Falk. Um, so, John Milton is trying to make amends for a career spent killing for the British Secret Service. He has a burning need to right wrongs and rehite his own bloody past. He finds himself in Louisiana, the big sleazy, the bayou, and the post-Katrina wreckage of the Gulf Coast with a debt of honour to repay. Isadora Bartholomew, who saved his partner's life, needs his help. Joel Babineau, a ruthless property magnet, is out to sink the charity she established to help rebuild the Lower Ninth Ward. Just when Milton thinks he has neutralised Babineau's scheming, a dangerous man from his past takes an unhealthy interest in his present. Claude Boone used to work for the Mossad and might be more than Milton can handle. And then the stakes get even higher. Salvation Row is the most explosive thriller yet in Mark Dawson's best-selling John Milton series. It's a book no self-respecting suspense fan will want to be without. So, um, yeah, like, I think, like, at the beginning... You know, you you're kind of like, wait, what's going on? Big, and then you realize, like, the beginning of the book is kind of a flashback. Um, but that's not clear when you first start in, and it's a flashback to a mission that he's on in Louisiana when um, Katrina is just about to hit. So then we get to the present day, and. Um, John finds out that, yeah, Isadora Bartholomew is in trouble. So he feels, look, she and her brother helped save um, my friend. So we owe them. So he goes to give her a hand. And I think when you first see the situation, you're just like, okay, well, yeah, you know, we've, we've seen John get out of things like this but things escalate and escalate and escalate and so it's at an, a, a point where you're just like hmm what will be the outcome what will be the butcher's um toll for how this book is gonna end because it cannot end well you know so that's all fine, you know, you get that kind of added suspense and things like that. I mean, there is always the notion knowing that there's more books. So you kind of know, okay, so obviously he survives. This is more books. So I think maybe if you'd read it when it came out, it might add that that little bit extra in the suspense um, stakes. But yeah, the book itself, the story itself is fine. Um, there are kind of moments when, you know, it's like Isadora, like, you know, she argues with him about about certain things. And it's just a, a point where you're just like, 
look, no one would be arguing now because she has seen how everything has escalated. So why would she be arguing? It makes no sense, you know? And like sometimes he says, right, I've got to do this. And she's like, oh, you lied to me. So I'm, why should I believe you? And it's just like, yeah. But he explained the lie. And what can you do? You know nothing. You can't, you're, you're scared of this world. So what, what can you do? So why would you? And all the things that he has done up to this point, how, how, why would there be any doubt, you know, so, so there's moments like that, that make you, eh, I don't know, what's going on here, and then, yeah, there's stuff with this court case that you're kind of thinking, mm, but could she do that, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, so there's things like that, um, there are kind of moments when it is kind of tied up, a bit too neat, you think, oh, it's a bit neat, that's a bit neat, the way things have been extricated out of that situation, so there is that, but I think in, like, as a whole, they're minor parts, and they don't really spoil the enjoyment of the book, Um, it is a bit difficult, because Ghost, and I, I, you know, I know I've said this before, but Ghost was such a great book, book number four, so everything else hasn't quite got back up to that, you know what I mean, that, uh, that point, so, like, everything else is just, it just pales a little bit in consideration, but it's still a decent book, you know, it still passes a time well, um, and you're still satisfied when it's end, and you kind of wonder, all right, so how do we move forward now, you know what I mean, like, where do, where will this go, so I, I would say, look, if you're a fan of the previous books, definitely pick this up, you know, if you're a fan of um, Tony Parsons' DC Max Wolf series, then again, I've, I think you'll enjoy these books. And I even if you're a fan of um, Mick Heron's um, Slow House um, books, yeah, I've, I think you would enjoy this book as well. So, um, yeah. Listen, this was um, Salvation Row, book six in the Mark in the John Milton series. Uh, It's by Mark Dawson, and the audio book on Audible is read by David Thorpe. So uh, yeah, check it out. Well, people, so the second book this week is Lies Sleeping. Now this is. The new book from Ben Aranovich. Again, it's read by Kobner Holbrook-Smith. And this is the new book, book seven in the Rivers of London series. And as you probably, if you've been listening for the last 
six weeks you know i've been building up to this point you know i've been excited to get to this book but i had to read the other six before it well six and a half because you know you had the novella oh and um yeah and the other shorter novella if you can call that a novella i don't even know but yeah building up to this point you know what i mean really excited and i'm just about to get into it so the um the breakdown is martin chorley aka the faceless man yes people that's right we found out the name of the faceless man in the last book so if you're not up to date hey that's on you you know but yeah, Martin Chorley, a.k.a. the faceless man, wanted for multiple counts of murder, fraud and crimes against humanity, has unmasked and is on the run. Peter Grant, detective constable and apprentice wizard, now plays a key role in an unprecedented joint operation to bring Chorley to justice. But even as the unwieldy might of the Metropolitan Police bears down on its foe, Peter uncovers clues that Chorley, far from being finished, is ex- executing the final stages of a long-term plan. A plan that has its roots in London's 2,000 bloody years of history and could literally bring the city to its knees. To save his beloved city, Peter's going to need help from his former best friend and colleague, Leslie May. Leslie May? who brutally betrayed him and everything he thought she believed in. And far worse, he might even have to come to terms with the malevolent supernatural killer and agent of chaos known as Mr. Punch. Well, I don't even know how to describe this book this book oh my god it's it's pretty damn good it is pretty damn good like as i said look i've i've said it numerous times but the thing i love about these books is the way everything layers and builds and grows and evolves you know what i mean no one is the same as they were in the very first outing you know it's like everyone is different everyone has grown like you could say people have become jaded rivers of london you read rivers of london peter's all carefree Nightingale's a bit like pull up his ass. You know what I mean? Everything like in this book, man, Peter Peter definitely feels like he's got the world on his shoulders. But Nightingale, he's got a bit looser. You know what I mean? Definitely a bit looser. So so much has changed. And Aranovich has really just Layered things up 
He's like ramped up the action, ramped up the excitement, the anticipation. He's really woven you in. So you are so caught up with all the characters. You want to know exactly what's going to happen. And if you think someone's in danger, you're like, no, no, that can't. But oh, what are we going to do with that, no, please don't do that, and you're just like, oh, man, I'm digging it, I'm digging it, and like, he, he he's introduced us to a few new people as well, like, um, uh, David Kramer, uh, which, which is very interesting, there's some interesting kind of developments with him in this book, and I have to say, I, I I was thinking certain things that didn't seem to pan out, but I was like, oh, 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 maybe that me, oh, yeah, I bet, ooh, you know what I mean, foxglove, which was interesting, because, you know, like, book five was foxglove, um, so, yeah, we have these new characters, like, Abigail, is getting more and more in entrenched in the world of wizardrum wizardrum yes i think that's a word it is now anyway but yeah so you have all this stuff and um i i i did not see the end of this book coming didn't see it coming i i was like i was expecting something a whole lot different Especially after the kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to read it to find out that, right? So after that, you're thinking, okay, so where does that, you know what I mean? Like, how is this going to pan now? And um, yeah, so after that, hey, things kind of go a bit, things get a little squirrely, man. Things get a little squirrely. And um, you know, I have to say there is there's a there's this bit at the end that was just like, oh man, you know what I mean? It'd be like if I asked you to quit, would you quit? Truthfully, yeah, of course, truthfully, always truthfully. I don't know. Like, but what would you ask me to quit? Truthfully, yeah, truthfully. I don't know, and it was just that interchange, that it was just like, oh, god damn it, man, there's another bit after that, but if I told you, I'm letting some stuff out, and I'm not gonna do that, but, yeah, it was just, uh, like, the heartstrings get pulled on, like, this is an emotional roller coaster. this book, it really just, oh man, it gets you, gets you, and I want to know what happens next, I want to know where we go from here, you know, like, because there's, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot that needs to be unraveled, I want to sit down with Ben Aranovich, you know what I mean, I want to sit down and talk to him about, yo, I've reached out with him, I've reached out to him, trying to get an interview for the podcast, hey, if you know Ben Aranovich, 
tell him to he needs to reply to my messages because we need that conversation you know what i mean but yeah people trust me if you haven't read this book yet you really need to read this book you really need this book in your life because if you thought the last book was good and that's always the thing like river of london thought it was great i thought that was just like thinking oh man how can you top this this is great this is a great book and then um you know what i mean you 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 get to uh the next book you know you you yeah moon over soho and you're like oh moon over that's a great book then whispers underground and you're like no 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 this, this is it broken homes like fox club summer Whew, then the hanging tree and just like how can you get better than this well i tell you people how you get better than this it's life sleeping life's sleeping is the shit i'm i'm t- this book will change your life it's incredible it's amazing man i, I need i need to like one of my friends i got her in into this into this series and as soon as she read rivers of london she's loving it and i hit her up recently i was like yo have you read lies sleeping she's like not yet so i need to once i finish here i'm hitting her up and i'm being like you need to read this goddamn book now but look you're gonna get to the end of this book and you are gonna wonder what the fuck because it's just like, oh, do you know what I mean? Ah, like I want to say so much, but I can't say anything. All I can say, this book is incredible. Ben Aranovich is a goddamn genius. And look, people, have I ever steered you wrong, right? So if you haven't read this series read the goddamn series look if you've enjoyed it as much as i've enjoyed it hit me a message like you can leave a voicemail on the anchor app you know what i mean let me know your thoughts but yeah so lie sleeping loving it um not quite sure what we're gonna do next week though you know what i mean because that's it that's it until we let ben ben decides to grace us with another so yeah gonna have to get some new new books no more rivers of london um reviews people that's us done okay people so before we end got a little bit of news that has winged its way to my inbox that you know i I have to pass on to people so following 2018's record-breaking global cinema release of the king and i from the London Palladium. This unmissable majestic production returns to cinemas around the UK for one night only on the 4th of April. Receiving both critical and audience acclaim, the film achieved the highest box office globally for a stage to screen event release in 2018. 
the multiple Tony Award winning Lincoln Center Theatre production of Rogers and Hammerstein's classic musical is directed by Tony Award winner Bartlett Scherer, which first opened on Broadway in 2015 for a critically acclaimed 16-month run at the Lincoln Center Theatre. This was followed by an unprecedented, record-breaking, sold-out US tour. The show then transferred to the London Palladium in June 2018, with the three original Broadway lead actors reprising their starring roles. Tony Award winner, Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role in a Musical for the Kigurai, Kelly O'Hara, Tony and Oscar nominee Ken Watatambi, Watatamba, and Tony Award winner, Best Performance by an Actress in a Featured Role in a Musical for The King and I, Ruthie Ann Miles. The production is also about to embark on an international tour opening in Manchester in April 2019 before playing key UK cities and then a major presentation at Tokyo Theatre Orb in Tokyo in summer 2019. Kelly O'Hara and Ken Wanatabe will reprise their roles once again for the Tokyo presentation. Further international dates are to be announced. Okay, so I'll put details of how to book in the episode information. But yeah, could be interesting. And um, another bit of news for you. So... Um, now in its 10th year, Canal in the City will return this parentide with London's annual mini festival of Cornish contemporary music and culture. Once again, the rich mix venue in the heart of Shoreditch plays host with an electric mix of Cornish pop, folk, and rock music, comedy and poetry in celebration of St. Piran's Day, Cornwall's patron saint, um, which I didn't know. Headlining this year are acclaimed garage rockers, the Velvet Hands, born out of the enemy-coined Canal Wave. I don't even know what that means. Rock scene and renowned for blending slacker storytelling with belting guitar riffs. Reminiscent of the strokes or the vaccines and arousing punk choruses that recall the clash. Firing on all youthful cylinders with effortlessly cool style. The Velvet Hands have art in their hearts as evidenced by last year's standout album Parts Over. Which gained them national airplay of Radio 1 and 6 Music. In support, they are delighted to welcome back Cornish royalty, the Canal King. Already a national treasure back in the homeland, 
he brings his comedic take on everyday Cornish life to London once again. And well, he's the king of Canal, so you better be there. It's your duty. Musical support also comes in the form of Davy and Dyer, leading competence of traditional Celtic music, who can kick up a storm armed only with a bazooki fiddle and a viola. Their repertoire of new and old Cornish music, taken from their recent album Dynamite Key, will have you moving your feet to their jigs, reels and polkas, not forgetting the exotic beauty of the Cornish five-step. Um, and also, the YouTube generation probably need no introduction to Daisy Clark, who burst onto the scene a few years ago with her unique cover version of Hopelessly Devoted to You. Uh, not a great song. Which led to her being voted Best Unsung Female at the Best of British Radio Awards in 2017, with much success on the festival and acoustic following on. They are delighted that Nuki's Daisy will open Canal in the City this year. Um, and finally, poetry has long been a feature of this event, and they assure you will love the exceptional talent that is Taron Spalding Jenkins. His work deals with his relationship with Cornwall and childhood there, drawing on its rich culture of legends and language, as well as more contemporary issues that befell the modern Cornish back home and abroad. Okay, so yeah, I will also put details of this event in the episode information. Uh, so, um, yeah. Now, a little bit of TV news, I guess. Okay, people, so, yeah, we, um... We're at the end of another episode. I appreciate you sticking with it because I realized that, you know what I mean? Man, I my voice probably sounds terrible. I can't breathe out of my nose right now. I don't know. Just completely mugged up. I'm hoping I do not get ridiculously ill. But it's making me sound like an arse. So I apologize and hopefully we will back to my normal dulcet tones next episode. But just a couple of bits this week. So um, Josh Donnell and Leslie Bibb have scored the lead roles in Netflix upcoming adaptation of Jupiter's Legacy. So, um, Donnell will play the Utopian and Bib will play Lady Liberty. Um, this is based on Mark Miller and Frank Quietly's 2013 comic. The story begins when Sheldon and Grace Sampson, 
and a handful of their friends stumble upon a mysterious island where they gained superhuman abilities, establishing themselves as the first generation of superheroes. They formed the Udian of Justice. Years later, the pair had two children, Chloe and Brandon, who inherited their own set of powers but have also developed a cynical attitude towards superheroes and struggle to find their place in the shadow of their famous parents. Uh, Elena Campurus and Andrew Horton will play the children. Um, yeah, and... Uh, It'll be interesting to see how this um, turns out, really. Um, Stephen S. The Knight, who um, people might know from the first season of Netflix's Daredevil, he will be, uh, yeah, he will um, be the showrunner. Um, he also write and then direct the pilot episode. Um, uh, the Knight Miller, Lorenzo Di Bonvenicia, and Dan McDermott will be executive producers. Uh, and the next bit of news: um, Hulu have announced um, four. Uh, animated series based on Marvel properties. So that is uh, pretty interesting. Um, we have Howard the Duck, Marvel's Modoc, um, Marvel's Hit Monkey, and Marvel's Tiger and Dazzler show. Yeah. And um, the offend, and also the uh, there'll be a special called the offenders. So um, that's pretty interesting. Kevin Smith and Dave Willis will pen and executive produce the Howard the Duck. Um, Patton Oswalt and Jordan Bloom will pen and executive produce Marvel's MODOK. Josh Gordon and Will Speck will pen and executive produce Hitmonkey. And Chelsea Handler and Erica Revenger will pen and executive produce Tiger and Dazzler. Um... And the offenders will see the leads of all four series forced to team up in order to save the world and certain parts of the universe. So, yeah, like after um, Runaways, looks like Hulu is getting more Marvel in its life. So we'll see how um, how all of this turns out. But yeah, that is it. For another episode. And I um, hope to see you again next week. Remember. Share with your friends. I appreciate you all listening. Take it easy people. Peace. <laughs>